Hello, this is Philip Norville Joe Carroll, author and narrator of the Pariah Podcast. This is Episode 7, A New Understanding. Three men already occupied the wayshed. In the light of the single lantern sitting on the stone oven, one of the men was clearly dead. Blood oozed from a slice across his neck, and his sightless eyes stared up at the shadows dancing on the ceiling as the other two dug through his pockets. Keo had entered the hut first, and consequently stood before the murderer and his knife and escape. Morden, crowding into the room behind and unable to see past Keo, pushed him toward the two men. Fortunately, the thieves were as surprised as Keo was. The man with the knife looked up through tangles of greasy hair, his surprise turning quickly to glee. A randomly toothed smile split his weather-worn face. "'Back out!' Keo shouted and spun around, whipping the thieves with his wet overcloak, squeezed past Morden, and back out the still-open door. The other boy hadn't done as Keo suggested and stood in the doorway, looking over the scene. Keo hoped he was as proficient with his staff as he had said he was. The confines of the way hut provided little space for maneuvering, and Keo doubted Morden would be able to swing the pole with enough speed to incapacitate either of the thieves. He was wrong. The staff didn't need to be swung to do damage. Tipping the upper end of the staff while whipping the bottom forward gave the stick enough motion to crack the knife holder between the eyes. The man went onto his back like a sprung trap, blood spurting from his nose and his eyes rolling back in his head, rendering him unconscious or dead. The other stood, his hands open, ready at his sides. The extra space only gave Morden greater momentum to bring the bottom of the staff back up into the thief's unprotected crotch. He dropped to the floor with a gurgling scream. It all happened so quickly, Keel was sure the first man was still falling when the second received his blow. After a moment of stunned contemplation, Keo asked, What do we do now? Tie them up? Yes, naked, Morden said. Naked? They'll be much more defenseless naked. If they should come around and escape their bonds somehow, they can't just run off. Also, we'll find any hidden weapons or poison or gold, Morden said. They stripped the thieves down as quickly as possible, cut their cloaks into strips and bound their hands behind their backs. In addition, Morden suggested they tie leashes from their bound wrists to slip knots around the companion's neck, so that if one struggled, the other would choke. They left them outside the way shed, tied by their feet to low branches of a tree, so they would be unable to stand. Each had worn a leather pouch on a long thong around the neck. Inside was the spoils of their thievery, gold, silver, bronze, and tin ticks, plus some women's jewelry with rubies, sapphires, and pearls in a gold brooch. The victim, a finely dressed man in his middle years, with only a bit of gray frosting his slick black hair at the temples and a waistline indicating a life of relative ease, lay on his back with his sword still at his belt. They moved him to one side and covered him with his cloak. Keogh and Morden then took turns through the evening and night, one sleeping and one on guard, until morning came with a new day and the end of the rain. Hender's Peak 
Morden found three horses tied in the trees behind the way hut. Keogh helped Morden lash the dead merchant to one of the horses. The two thieves were also tied to horses, though naked and sitting backwards in the saddle. As soon as it was light enough to see their way along the highway, Keogh and Morden led the horses and their cargo toward the capital. We should have gagged the thief before we tied him to the horse, Morden said. I didn't think of that, but if I ever find myself again with prisoners who can talk, I've learned from my mistake, Keogh laughed. When the continuous string of curses from the thief became unbearable, Morden raised his staff and pointed it at the other thief as a reminder. The first, who had brandished the bloody knife and received a staff butt between his eyes for it, sat, hunched in the saddle, unconscious and not likely to survive long enough to be hanged. By mid-morning, the forest opened up to reveal a gradual grassy slope to the walls of the city, roughly five miles away. In the distance, wood rail fences marked off pastures for grazing cattle and sheep. One advantage to our prisoner's annoying babble is that I haven't had much time to feel the forest pressing down on me, Morden said. He took the staff in his right hand and flipped it up, into the air, his left hand holding a horse's reins. The staff spun as high as the treetops. He caught it again without looking at it, as if it dropped into his hand of its own will. Keo laughed. I know I've said it already, but you were impressive with that staff last night. I thought we were helpless in that small space. But you took them down like a grandmaster. Not a grandmaster, Morden said with an edge of his former condescension cutting through his words. Like a third master. I'm out of practice. A grandmaster would have done the damage in one motion and without sound. Keogh looked back at the horse with its morbid bundle, and behind it, the swords and the saddlebags taken from the thieves. They had three swords between them, and two looked to be of very high quality. "'What do you think the city guards are going to do with all the stuff in the saddlebags?' Keogh asked. "'According to the rules of honorable engagement, all of the thieves' weapons belong to us. Any weapons and possessions found on the dead man are his and will be held by the city guards for his family, if they can be found.' Of all the valuables found on the thieves, we're allowed one-fourth. The rest will be used to find the dead man's family. If we weren't going into the king's service, we would have been given the thieves' horses as well. If we're lucky, and the guards are honorable, they'll sell the horses and give us the value. What's to keep them from taking it all and saying they captured the thieves themselves? Morden shrugged. I think the king's service has enough prestige in the capital that the city guard wouldn't want to tip that ore cart. Besides, most of the guards started out in the king's service. The highway broadened as it neared the city, the pasture fences eventually preventing it from expanding even further. The city wall rose up as they approached, as high as three tall men and built of the same sturdy stone they'd seen around most of the villages on their travels. At the city gates, the guards who came out to meet them were honorable. They recognized the dead man as a resident merchant of the city and knew where to find his widow. The hanging will be announced in a few days, the sergeant of the guard told the boys as he walked them from the guard's room just beyond the city wall. If you haven't been carted off to your service, you're welcome to join us on the platform, as is your due. 
I should have those horses sold by this afternoon, and will bring the proceeds myself to the inn of the Black Mastiff. It's right along the service grounds, and it is a much better lodging than you'll get inside the grounds. No sense sleeping on a rotting cot when you can sleep on a feather bed. You'll have more than enough ticks to pay for it. Besides, you'll get your share of squeaking cots in the next few months. The sergeant laughed companionably and reminisced about his days of king's service before advancing to the permanent guard many years before. Follow this road to the white square. It's a mile or so along. and has a long white fountain with a statue of three women pouring water from pitchers. Take the wide road to the right descending toward the lake. You'll see the service grounds down below. The black mastiff is right outside the camp entrance. They thanked the guard, who turned and strode back toward the guardroom. Passing a life-size statue of King Glarence the Constant, the guard slapped the back of his open right hand to his forehead in salute and then disappeared down the tunnel toward the gates. Keogh and Morden turned back to the press of people, hurrying to complete their day's business and head back to their homes. Keogh felt new and large like a soldier returning from battle. He now wore a sword on his hip, and tied inside his tunic on the other hip was a leather coin bag with a decent weight of gold and silver, two things he had never had for his own. Your sword is a good one. Don't fret about that, Morden said. But since I did the fighting, I should get the choice of the better. Do you think they'll let me keep it once I'm in the service? Of course, Morden said, and with a twitch of his lip, a soldier needs a sword. They'll put it in the armory for you till you've been trained to carry one. They only use practice swords made of cane during training in the first year. If my uncle hadn't been such a rotting miser, he should have given me a sword to bring into service. Never mind, though. This sword is better than anything he ever carried. Morden patted the hilt at his side. At the Black Mastiff, Keogh began with his regular introduction. Hello, we're on our way to... and stopped. There would be no free accommodations here, not with the service grounds right next door. We'd like a room for the night. Well, actually, for six nights, until the day of selection begins. The mistress didn't look pleased. There'll be no free nights here. If you have the ticks, we have the rooms. But we want none of your trouble and no weapons in the common room. Keogh had forgotten he now wore a sword on his hip. Of course, he said. "'reaching into his tunic and pulling out a comfortably heavy coin sack. "'He pulled the string open and spilled ticks into his hand. "'How much will it be for one room, two beds and meals until the selection?' "'The woman raised her eyes in pleasant surprise. "'You must be designate thirds to have so many ticks.' "'Morden stamped the staff on the wooden floor and said, "'How we've come upon our coin is not your concern, "'only that we are wanting a room, and we expect a fair price.' "'Of course,' the mistress said, her eyes twinkling. "'We have a room on the fourth floor with a small window "'and two beds for four silvers or one gold. "'Or we have a room on the third floor "'with the window that opens for one gold and two silvers. "'But if you're feeling your ticks, "'there's a room on the second floor with a balcony for three gold. "'All will have wash-basins in the morning and evening, "'and your meals as often as you like, "'between the morning sixes and three before midnight.' "'We'll take the third floor,' they said together, then shared an annoyed glance. The woman laughed. "'A wise choice and the best value.' The mistress raised her hand and called, "'Forgord, show Glearance's boys here to the third floor and let them choose any available room.' 
She turned back to them. And I remind you, no weapons of any kind in the common rooms. May I have your names? She produced a pen and dipped it into an ink pot. Kiyo Noshani, of Beaker's Village, Kiyo said, and the woman scratched it into the thick book. Morden Farnding, Morden said, clearly leaving off his origin. The mistress raised her eyes and said, So we do have a designate third. Morden's face remained blank, and he was silent as they followed Forgord to the third floor. The service ground spread out beyond a wrought iron fence across the street from the Black Mastiff. From their third floor window, countless straight roads formed square blocks of whitewashed buildings, parade grounds, and soldier barracks as far as they could see. Boys and girls their age, flowing in and out of one of the larger buildings close to the gate, gave Keo the idea it was likely the intake headquarters. We're a week early and still more than 2,000 people are ahead of us for selection, Morden complained. The sergeant looked unimpressed and said, There are that many thirds in the city alone. Not all are as enthusiastic as you. And what is your name? He dipped and held his pen over a sheet of parchment, impatiently waiting. Morden, he said, and rubbed his nose, making an obvious gesture with his signet ring. The sergeant looked closely at the ring without changing his expression. He took a square sheet and read down a list. He asked, Farnding? Yes, sir, Morden said. And you? He asked Keo. Are you on this list? No, sir, Keo said. My name is Keo Noshani. Well then, Morden Farnding, you come to the service grounds on the morning of the equinox, which is six days hence, and you will report to the Office of Assignments for special selections. The building is further down this road and on the right. Bring all your belongings with you at that time. If you have any weapons, you will register them in the armory at that same office. He spoke as one who had repeated the words a thousand times each year and turned to Keo. Keo Noshani, you will report to the general office of assignments in the third hour past midday on the day of the equinox, which is six days hence. Your induction number is 2235. Don't forget it. Do you read numbers? He looked up for Keo's reply. I will write it on a piece of paper for you. Bring all your belongings with you when you report. If you have any weapons, you will register them in the armory before you enter the general office of assignments. That office is further down this road and on the left side. The armory is the building with the red flag flying before it during its hours of operation. The general office of assignments is the next building, just beyond. He handed a stub of paper to Keo, with the numbers written on it, and then asked them both, Do you have any questions? No, sir. They both said, Good. You are both under orders of Glarence the Constant, King of Highland, and in His Majesty's service as of this time, and you will be expected to act accordingly. If you wish quartering until the selection, rooms will be made available to you. Thank you, Sergeant, Keo said. We have a room at the Mastiff. The sergeant raised his eyebrows and said, It must be good to have money. Regardless, any crimes you may commit will be adjudicated by the service, and we are more severe in our punishments than the civil authorities, especially for public drunkenness or disorder. You have your orders, you may go. Spring had followed the rainstorm from the west coast, and the morning air was pleasant and warm. They walked down the center of the cobbled road, passing boys and girls their age, and more who were not. 
Passing back through the gate, they crossed the street to the Mastiff. "'What do we do now? We've got six days to pass the time without getting drunk or disorderly,' Keo said with a laugh. "'I never thought I'd say those words.' "'I've heard the city guard here are very strict with the thirds coming in from all over the kingdom. "'For most of them, this is their first time out from under their mother's noses, "'and they forget how to behave themselves,' Morden said, "'and looked up and down the streets from the intersection.' He shook his head and frowned. From the stories, there's a city guard on every corner, but I don't see a single one. Wait here. Morden ran into the inn and was back out before Keo could wonder where he had gone. This way, Morden said, waving them back up the street toward the white square. At the second cross street, they turned to the right and entered the first shop they came to. The room had a high ceiling and many windows on each wall, supplying plenty of light to a broad open floor. The polished wood shone like glass. Ornate and antique swords of every shape imaginable decorated the walls between the tall windows. On the far wall, next to an open office door, racks held bald-tipped foils, wooden slat sabers, and heavily padded broadswords. A man stood at attention next to the rack. "'We'd like some instruction,' Morden said to the attendant. "'I've been trained by a first master for half a year. "'My friend here has had no instruction yet.' "'The attendant nodded and turned through the door at his side. "'A moment later, he followed another man into the room. "'The attendant came to Keel while the other man approached Morden. "'My name is Steen,' the attendant said to Keo. "'I will be your instructor today.' Keo introduced himself and followed his instructor to the rack of practice swords. In the first hour after midday, they went back to the inn for lunch. "'Would you like apple cider or ale with your lunch?' the serving girl asked as she settled them at a table. "'Cider's good for me,' Keo said, and Morden nodded his head for the same. "'How much do we owe the swordsman?' Keo asked. "'We'll settle up the evening before the equinox.' I figure if we start each morning with some sword training, you'll be ready and way ahead of the rest of the servicemen by almost a month. Is the training expensive? Keo asked, mentally counting how much he had in his money pouch. I don't think yours will be more than a silver tick. You'll have plenty left over, Morden said dismissively. Morden, I have to admit I misjudged you. You were a lot different than you seemed when you were on that wagon and I was walking. Keo said. I'd be lying if I didn't say the same thing about you. When you went through my stuff and put most of it on the wagon, I didn't know how I was going to get by without it. I was so angry I wanted to choke you. I thought you were such an arrogant, rotting bastard that you really would leave me behind if I couldn't keep up. I was dead tired before midday. But you kept going, Keo said. That's what makes a difference. Maybe but I also saw you were waiting for me, or going slower, so I could keep up. I really expected you to leave me way behind, to follow in late at night. Then, the next day, you went a lot easier even than the first. You didn't pity or speak down to me, and finally, when we were in the forest, and my insides were turning to water, I was acting like a little child. You didn't belittle me, or shame me into acting like an adult, like I would have done to someone I believed was my inferior. Instead, you encouraged me. You showed me that you were scared as well, but you had the courage to carry on. But that wasn't all. 
When we were safely in the village, you looked for a way to make it easier to get through the final leg of our journey. I thought, when I get my command, that you would be one person I would like to have working for me. But that wouldn't be right. You deserve your own command. Those of us who are designate thirds were groomed to become military leaders. We're prepared more to be leaders than most first sons. First sons will believe they have the right to rule because they're first and favored. We thirds, we work hard to be leaders, and more often than not, we win the leadership. As they finished their lunch, the sergeant of the guard, who had dealt with them the night before, found them in the common room and brought each of them another small pouch of ticks. Your share from the sale of the thieves' horses and their valuables, which remained unspoken for. He unrolled a thick piece of paper, which turned out to be two separate papers, with a wax seal pressed into the bottom of each page. My commander insisted on commanding each of you for apprehending the thieves and of the honorable disposition of the valuables. Not all young men would have acted so conscientiously. It may have little effect on your position, Master Morden, but Master Noshani, here, being of unknown character and potential, this letter could have a great effect on your chances of promotion. After their lunch settled, they went back to the swordsman's establishment for stretching and flexibility exercises. In the evening, as Keo and Morden finished off roast chicken and soda biscuits, three young women their age approached the table. The serving woman had just refilled Keo's cider when she saw the girls approaching and winked at Keo. Without invitation, they sat in empty chairs. The three had a family resemblance, an almost identical carriage. Morden finished his chicken leg and dropped the bone to his stoneware plate. The girl with the biggest eyes Keo had ever seen sat next to Morden, leaned toward him and said, Your uncle told me to say hello. Keo realized the girl's eyes weren't actually larger than normal, only decorated with colored powders to make them appear that way. Unlike the girls from Peeker's Village and the Swamp Hills who only wore gowns on special days, these three all wore dresses finer than Brooke's midsummer festival dress. He glanced at the bodice of her dress and quickly looked away, embarrassed. The white linen blouse had full sleeves with lace at the wrists and an open collar with laces down from the neck. Rather than forming a modest bow in the hollow of her neck, the laces hung open and loose, revealing an enormous amount of cleavage. So far in Keo's travel, and especially around his home, he had never seen a woman of any age expose so much of her skin. Even the tavern mistresses, who were well known for their lower levels of propriety, had remained more covered than this girl did. Morden's eyes remained riveted on hers. He shook his head minutely and said, No, he didn't. The girl laughed and sat back in her chair, jiggling impressively. Okay, he would have if I had taken the time to visit on my way to the capital. But it looks like we both wanted to get here with enough time to establish a position, she said, peering around the room conspiratorially. Keo, this is Kayleen, my cousin and fellow third from somewhere in the southern hardwoods. Kay, this is my friend Keo from an estate out toward the swamp hills. She seemed to notice there was another person at the table for the first time. She turned her face toward him and smiled, though her eyes went to Keo's hands. 
She even tipped her head to try and see around the mug in his right hand. I'm pleased to meet you, Kyo. Who is your father? Kyo held up his hands, turned them over and back. I'm pleased to meet you as well. My father is no one you've heard of. She looked across and turned her attention back to Morden, opened her mouth to speak, but frowned and closed it again. It's not hard to understand, Kay. He's not a designate third. He's a friend, a companion from the road. We traveled together along the southern highway. You came down the southern? she asked, not directing it to him, but into the air, as if examining the thought in her own mind, then looked back at him. You came all the way from the eastern draw? I thought you were at your uncle's estates outside the capital. Morden sighed and shifted on his chair. It's been five years since I last saw my uncle. I've been sweating it out in the rock fields of my father's allotment, learning how to manage. He said the last, holding his hands in the air and wiggling his fingers. We've had a boy watching the gates, and he said a wagon hasn't come in from the south yet. We didn't come on the wagon, Morden said. Who are your friends? The two looked at Shailene, probably expecting an introduction, but she seemed to have not heard the question. You didn't come by wagon? She blinked her eyes. Did you come by boat? How in the rotting kingdom did you get here? We made our way, Morden said dismissively, along the southern highway. Does your father have horses? She asked, though she didn't see Morden's face darken at her persistence. No, my father doesn't have horses. Keo's father has a large ranch and apple orchards. They have horses as well as other livestock. Really? She looked at Keo with sudden interest. I've not been on a horse much. Quite frankly, I'm amazed Morden was able to stay on one at all. He was never one for great balance. May I see your horses? Maybe go for a short ride? Keo looked at Morden, considering Kayleen's statement. This boy has no balance? That wasn't what two thieves would have thought, though he did seem hesitant to ride when the idea came up on the road. We sold them, Kay, not having a way to send them back and not wanting to board them for a year of training. It was Keo's inheritance gift from his father, the price gained of selling two horses. Morden had a knack for storytelling. The details seemed to flow with ease and believability. Kay looked back at Keo, the question in her eyes. He said, That's true. All I have to show for them is the ticks in my pouch. I'll miss the old girl. But if you want to go for a ride sometime... There are other horses in the stable, and I'm sure the inn will loan us a few for an afternoon. Kayleen clapped like a little girl on her birthday. Oh, that sounds like great fun. Morden, when can we go? she asked. I'm afraid Kia will have to take you. After traveling all the way from the southern draw, I've had quite enough of horses and could live without seeing one for another year. She pouted for a moment, then turned back to Kia. Great. When can we go? How about after lunch tomorrow? Are you staying nearby? Keo asked. The girl got a wicked look in her eyes, and the other two giggled. Yes, Kayleen said. We're on the second floor. As the evening progressed and the girls ate, Keo learned that the other two girls were cousins to each other, thirds from another designate along the southwest border of Highlands with its neighbor, Southland. When musicians began to play, one with a stringed instrument Keo had never seen, and another a long wooden flute with multiple holes and small sliding doors, all three of the girls wanted to dance. 
By the time the second song ended, Lawana had convinced Morden to dance. Her cousin, Benali, and Kayleen both looked to Keo expectantly. I don't know your city dances, he said with an apologetic shrug. Benali deflated and settled her chin in her cupped hand, her elbow on the table. Kayleen didn't accept his excuse and pulled him to the dance floor by his tunic sleeve. I'm going to teach you, she said. Really, it isn't hard. Morden can't stay balanced on a horse for a minute, but he can dance. You should find this simple. Keo remembered watching Morden on the practice floor that morning, exchanging blows with the first master. His feet slid across the floor as he slashed and jabbed with the wooden slat saber. He held his head up, neck straight, and his eyes never moved from his opponent, remaining level with each step and stroke. Dancing should be second nature to one with such grace. He can't balance on a horse? Impossible, Keo thought. Keo followed Kayleen to the dance floor. She wore a skirt of hand-painted linen. The combination of colors gave the impression of a spring flower garden below a royal blue sky. She wore a narrow belt of woven linen strips where her blouse tucked into the skirt. The snow-white blouse, with its voluminous sleeves, reminded him even more of billowing clouds above the garden and blue sky. Once she turned to face him, flower gardens and blue skies were quickly forgotten. Keo realized he was staring at her abundant and highly visible bosom. He was chagrined to find her watching him and smiling when he returned his eyes to hers. "'Your right hand goes here on my ribs,' she said, taking his hand and placing it on her side. She placed her left hand on his shoulder, resting her elbow on his arm, and the other holds mine at this level. She hefted the other hand in the air to the level of her shoulder and said, Now, two steps this way, one step that, one step this way, two steps that, two steps this way, turn and turn, side, 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 and turn. It's simple. Right, simple, but I'm simpler. Tell me again now, two steps this way? There was a lot of toe trampling, slipping and bumping involved. Time and again, Keo tripped, falling into her. Each time he apologized, embarrassed. Kayleen laughed and said, This is why we dance. Dancing in Peeker's village was a much more open, far-apart affair. Back at home, it was nice to hold the hand of a young lady. It was nothing compared to the body closeness of this tavern jig. Each time he stepped on her toes, he apologized, reflexively looking down toward his offending feet. Though, all he saw was Kayleen's amazing cleavage. At some point, Morden switched from Loana to Benali, giving the other girl an opportunity to dance. The musicians took a break. The tavern clock chimed three before midnight. Kayleen held on to Keo on the dance floor. She was tall, and though not as tall as he... She looked him in the eyes without feigned shyness. Having her left hand already on his shoulder, she brought her other up and lightly massaged his neck, shoulders, and his upper arms. "'You're so strong,' Kayleen said, not gushing or flirting, only stating a fact and her unabashed appreciation. "'What do you do on your ranch to build such muscles?' "'There's a lot of work on a ranch, and whether you're master or one of the hired workers, you've got to get it done.' most of it every day, and usually before the sun sets. I think cutting and stacking hay was the hardest work. After raking the cut hay into long windrows and letting it dry for a few days, you have to turn it over a couple times in between. Then we have to pile it onto a wagon and drive it back to the barn. Raking all that hay and stacking it into a pile, 
I think it's what made my back strong. She didn't seem to be listening to him. Her eyes were distant, though they stared at his chest. She ran her hands beneath his arms and around his back to massage the muscles of his upper back. She pressed herself solidly against him to reach his shoulders from behind. I'd love to see your back, she mumbled underneath her breath. Kia wondered if she meant to say it out loud. Morden walked over then and said, Time to let go, Sindestra. You, you're no fun. We were just starting to warm up to each other, Kayleen said. You look pretty warm and have been for some time. Keo and I have plans for tomorrow morning, and it means getting a decent night's sleep. Let go now and I'll let you play with him tomorrow, Morden smiled, but his voice was cold, as if to say that playing was all right, but don't let it get serious. Early day? Kayleen asked as she dropped her hands away, blinking the frosty anger from her eyes and reapplying a smile to her lips. What have you got to do that's so important you would squander the last few mornings to sleep in late? We scheduled sword training in the morning, Morden said. Why in the name of all the rotting gods would you do that? You are far more adept than any of your competition will be, and you can't learn any great amount in the next week. You're as smart as you are pretty, Morden said, and laughed loudly when she scowled in response. I am well trained, but my friend here is not. He only has three hours of training beneath his sword belt, and that from this morning. Yes, but he is big and strong, and will learn adequately from his instructors in the service. That's all he needs. Being a civic guard, or a soldier, only requires a man to do as he's told. If he must defend something, he's big. Give him a sword, and he will do just fine. You haven't heard yet, and though you think you're pretty perceptive, you haven't seen yet. This boy will be no mean soldier. He's destined to do great things. Come on, Keo. Good night, ladies. He's right, Keo said and blushed. I mean, about going to swordsmanship lessons in the morning. Will you be around in the afternoon? I might, if I can't find anything better to do, she said, her face a perfect depiction of disinterest. But then she smiled a sincere glimmer in her eyes, and said, I'll be looking for you. Thank you for listening to the Pariah Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more, stop by my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Joe and see how you can help me produce these episodes and earn some bonuses for yourself at the same time. If you could help me out by going to iTunes and leaving a review, I'd love you for the rest of my life. Any kind of feedback to an author, producer, is more sustaining than food and water. If you'd like to know what else I've written, or am writing, stop by my website at norvaljoe.com, or like my Facebook page at facebook.com slash philipcarrollauthor, philip with one L, carroll with two R's and two L's. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.